Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you that you are Lord over all things and that you are a good Lord. You are a kind and generous Lord. We pray, Father, with that in our minds, that we pray that you would bless our time this morning, trusting that uh, you care for us and you want good for us and you're able to pr provide good for us. Pray that you would help us to think rightly about your decrees, that we would not only uh, think rightly about them, but respond rightly about them uh, to the praise of your glorious grace. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, uh, we're going to transition. We just came from chapter 2, which was uh, about God, about his attributes, about uh, the Trinity, big topics. And in chapter 3, we're switching gears to God's decree. Uh, that is what God decrees, what he ordains like a, like a king, you know, uh, decrees something. He uh, uh, decides that such and such a thing would happen. And so this morning we're going to look at uh, uh, two sections of this chapter. And we're going to be looking at God's decree in general. God's decree in general. And just some historical context. Uh, the question that people have wrestled with is uh, basically whose will is ultimate? Is man's will ultimate or is God's will ultimate? Does man's will determine God's will or does God's will uh, end up determining man's will? And so we see there's two quotes there. One is um, from Erasmus who was a Roman Catholic apologist who uh, wrote against Martin Luther during the time of the Reformation. He wrote in his book, The Freedom of the Will, God's decree must turn according to man's decision. God's decree must turn according to man's decision. So this is the Roman Catholic Erasmus saying that what God determines uh, happens in accordance with what man decides. Okay, so who's in the driver's seat there? Man, right? Luther, in his um, response to that uh, book, The Freedom of the Will, he wrote The Bondage of the Will. And he writes, For the will of God is effectual and cannot be hindered, since it is the power of the divine nature itself. Whatever God determines, whatever God's will happens, it's, it's effectual, and nothing can prevent that. It can't be hindered. And his reason is because it's of the divine nature itself. It's God we're talking about. And so from Luther's perspective, who's in the driver's seat? God. God's in the driver's seat. And that's the position the confession takes. And my hope this morning is that we'll see that that's the position the Bible takes, that God is in the driver's seat, that God actually has determined all things uh, from eternity past. We see the first uh, sentence there, first portion of the section there um, from the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. We read, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. So we see there are several things that God has determined. He's, he's decreed everything from eternity past, all things that will then come to pass. And we also see that, the, that it's, it's um, related to his nature, right? It's 
by his most wise and holy counsel that he decides this. And he decides it freely and unchangeably. Nothing can hinder him. Nothing can change him. Uh, All things that he has determined in in eternity past actually come to pass. And this is a, before we continue, we we have to recognize that this is a challenging doctrine. When, when you start actually putting some meat on the bones, when you start thinking about uh, things that have, that have happened perhaps in your own life or things that are happening in the world, or this is a challenging thing to think through. We have to recognize that, that the idea that God has decreed in himself all things, uh, and all things happen according to his will, uh, it's a challenging thing. And so we as we're thinking about this, as we're thinking about the extent of God's sovereignty, we need to be careful and we need to keep in mind that God is not only sovereign. Right? That God is other things, too. What, what else is God? He's good. He's good, he's holy, he's all-knowing, righteous and wise. We could keep going, right? He's, he's gracious, he's immutable. I'm running out of room, which is good. <laughs> you can't contain God on a chalkboard, yeah. But this, this is a good start, right? We, we don't want to divorce God's sovereignty from all of these things. And, and where it gets hard is when we see something um, evil that's happened or bad that's happened, there's a temptation to want to either deny uh, God's goodness, particularly, or God's sovereignty. There's that temptation to want to deny either God's goodness or God's sovereignty. And so many who, who rightly want to defend God's goodness end up denying God's sovereignty. That God must not actually be over this thing. But, but we don't want to do that. We don't want to deny biblical truth. And we'll see today that uh, the Bible, God's word, does not have any problem with this. That, that God actually is sovereign and good in whatever he's decided to happen. Even if it doesn't seem like it to us. And so we want to keep that in mind. This is the character of God. He's not only sovereign. He's all of these things. We also... As we're thinking about this challenging doctrine, we want to think about how we're supposed to respond to it. How are we supposed to respond to this challenging doctrine? Because we actually see in the Bible how we are supposed to respond to it. How do the the biblical writers respond to this idea that God is sovereign over all things? And we want to take our cues from them. Does that make sense? That it's it's not just... uh, it's not just understanding the truth and believing the truth. We also want to respond rightly to the truth. And, and so we're going to take our cues from Scripture in that regard. So let's go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 46. We're looking at God's decree. What's the nature of God's decree? What does the Bible say about what God has decreed? How are we to respond to what God has decreed? Isaiah chapter 46. 
God is um, comparing himself with the idols of Babylon. Uh, the idols are just made out of you know, wood and gold and all these things. But, but what's God like? Verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So he's different. There, there's no one like him. The idols don't compare to him. right? He's utterly unique. There's no God like the true and living God. How is he different? Verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. is talking about Cyrus who will eventually be sent in judgment against Babylon. Calling a, a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. First of all, uh, first question there, when does God declare the end? From ancient times, from, from the beginning, right? So God decrees things from the beginning. Um, and in this passage, is God's determination of the end, is God's determination of what's about to happen with, with Babylon and, and King Cyrus, is he announcing that based upon the fact that he, he only knows what will happen in the future? Is it in accordance only with his omniscience? It's in accordance with his purpose, right? He's, he says, he declares the end from the from the beginning in verse 10, and then verse, uh, at the end of verse 10, he says, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. All that's, that's going to happen, uh, the beginning and all the way to the end, is happening according to the counsel of his will. It's happening according to his purpose. He's going to accomplish it. We see that same thing in verse 11. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And so here, God's decrees, you know, Erasmus would say God's decrees is based upon man's decision, but what do we see here? God's decrees are based upon what? His, his purpose, right? His will, his counsel, which uh, understanding the Trinity, we can the counsel within, within himself. Okay. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read the verses 3 through 12 here in a moment. And as we're reading uh, this passage, I want us to think about what happens according to God's will, and then secondly, what is the purpose of God's decree or God's will, and then thirdly, how should we then respond to God's purpose, will, uh, or decree there. So let's go ahead and read that. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, that's in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We could keep reading there. But in this passage, what, what do we see happens? What's the, the scope? What, what happens according to God's will? Some things... All things, right? All things. God has decreed all things. All things are happening according to the counsel of his will. And what is the purpose? What's the ultimate purpose for God's decrees? You see that repeated. If we were to keep reading, we would see that that phrase uh, continued to be repeated, right? It's all to his glory. It's to his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory in verse 12. In verse 14, at the end there, to the praise of his glory. All of these things, particularly our salvation and what we have in Christ, uh, is to his glory. Is that selfish? It's good. What's the best thing that God could give us? What's the best thing that God could show us? Himself, His glory. Right? Is it, if God worked all things according to the counsel of His will to the glory of another, outside of the, our triune God, would that be okay? That would be sinful. That would be idolatry, right? And so God does all things to his glory. That's good and right. That's, that's what he ought to do, and it's good that he does it. And even within that, you have the triune God, the Father, wanting to glorify the Son, and the Son wanting to glorify. It, it's, it's a loving uh, um, uh, decree to glorify himself. And so if all things are decreed, Think with me. If all things are decreed to his glory, if, if that's the end of all things, how should we respond to that? What would be a right response to that? Praise. Praise right? Even if the thing in itself is bad, we, we, don't, we don't need to be happy about bad things. You know, that, that, there's a sense that that wouldn't be right. We should actually be grieved over sinful things. We should hate sin. 
But, but at the end of the day, we can also praise God because we know all things are actually working to the praise of his glory, and that is actually good for us. There will never, never be a moment in eternity where we say, oh, God, why did you show your glory that way? We'll never be disappointed that he did that. And so we can pray, we're going to be praising him for, for eternity. We can praise him now that all things are working according to his will, to the praise of his glory. Hebrews 6, let's turn there. Hebrews 6, if someone could read verses 17 through 20 for us. Great, thank you. Here, uh, the author um, of the book of Hebrews is talking about the, the promise that he made to Abraham, and he wants to, to show uh, to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. So what's the nature of God's purpose? What's the, the nature of God's decree? Unchangeable. Which makes sense because God is himself immutable. He's unchangeable himself. Well, how are, how are we to respond to it? How does uh, the writer uh, to, to the, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, respond to this fact that uh, God's purposes are unchangeable? The purposes that God had for the promises made to Abraham uh, will be fulfilled. What, what does he say? He says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And so because God's purposes, here, here specifically talking about his purposes for the promise given to Abraham, because his purposes are unchangeable, because that's the nature of God's decree, how should we respond to that? With hope and encouragement. And that's the case for all the promises of God. Because God, God's decree is unchangeable, we can have hope and encouragement in the promises that he's given us. Because what he has said he will do, he will do, and nothing will change that, not even me. Which is a good thing, isn't it? If, if we had Erasmus's view that God's decree turns based upon the decision of man, could we have any real hope and encouragement in the promises of God? It would be an absolute mess. 
right? But because God's purposes, because God's decrees, because God's will is unchangeable, we can have hope and encouragement in the promises of God. Nothing, nothing will change what he has promised, not even man. Let's turn to Luke chapter uh, 12. Luke chapter 12. We're going to read verses 4 through 12. And as we read this passage, we want to think about, again, the scope of God's purpose and decree. Does God just decree the big things in life? Does he just decree big world events? Or is it more than that? And secondly, again, we want to think how we should respond to his uh, decree. So let's go ahead and read this, a familiar passage. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. This is uh, Jesus speaking. And after that, have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Jesus is saying, don't, don't fear men. Don't fear uh, those who can simply kill the body. Have a fear of, of God who uh, uh, has the authority to cast into hell. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is saying, hey, don't, don't fear man. Why? Is it, is it only because God knows when sparrows are sold? Is it only because God knows how many uh, hairs you have on your head? Is it just a bare knowledge? Would that really give us much comfort? No, it's, it's actually a, a, a knowledge because it's what he has determined. We're not to fear men because God is sovereign even over sparrows, even over the number of hairs on your head. He goes on, and I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. Or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus here is providing comfort to the disciples, right? There's going to be a time where they're going to be dragged off to the synagogues. Where they will be persecuted. Where many of them will be killed. And what is their hope and comfort in all of that? Is it, is it only that God knows about these things? He's in control. He's even in control of the little things. He's in control. You know, we already said all things, but I think 
we need to understand that he he's also within that he's in control of little and big things because if he's just in control of big things that that, that provides comfort but when you wake up in the morning and life is hard, when your kids get sick, when, when you're discouraged about work, when you're anxious about a job interview, or these little things of life, God is also in control of those things. He's in control of the number of hairs on your head. And so, how do we respond to the knowledge that God has decreed all things? How does Jesus, how's Jesus applying that with the disciples? It's comforting, right? It should give us comfort. And isn't that comforting? That the God who, who loved us enough to send, his, to send his son to die in our place, that that God is the one who is in control of all things, who has determined all things, who has determined the number of hairs on your head. That is a great comfort. Yeah, Rick. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, let's turn to Second Samuel. This is probably actually one of the most comforting passages of scripture for me. Second Samuel verse uh sorry, Second Samuel chapter sixteen. Yeah, Second Samuel chapter sixteen, starting in verse five. The context is that um, Absalom has rebelled against his father David. He's taken over Jerusalem. David and um, his men are, are fleeing right now Jerusalem. And in verse five of chapter sixteen, we read, "When King David came to Baruim, there came out a man of that family of the house of Saul." whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And so David and his men are, are fleeing Jerusalem. Shammai comes out. He's cursing David. He's throwing stones at David. He's saying untrue things about David. This isn't, uh, Absalom hasn't taken the throne because of what David did to Saul. Right? He's accusing him of this evil that he had not done. Verse 9, Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. That's the kind of friend you probably want, huh? <laughs> but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, 
Who then shall say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. What, what is the source, what is the ultimate uh, reason why Shammai is cursing David, according to David? The Lord told him to do it. God had decreed it. God had ordained that Shammai would do this evil against David. And so it's, it's mind-blowing to me, this passage. It just shows a level of understanding that David had of God because on one side, he's holding up that fact that God is sovereign over this thing, right? And then what is his hope in that? That God will bless him. That God will do good to him will repay him with good for the evil done to him. And that, that's the kind of thing that blows your mind. That, that, God, that David, on one hand, recognizes that God had ordained, that God had decreed that Shammai would do this thing against David. And on the other hand, he's holding up the fact that God will perhaps do good to me out of this. Doesn't that blow your mind? That hurts my head a little bit. But again... Is God in control? Does, has God decreed even the bad things? And we're going to get to a moment, some fences that we need to have around that. Right? Did God decree that Shammai would do this evil against David? And yet, how does David respond? With comfort. That perhaps God will repay him with good. Romans 9. And as you're turning there, just another thing that really should, should help me, that should help us, because people will sin against us, just like we sin against people. And it, it's helpful to have a view that, that God actually is accomplishing good, has, has decreed good to come from that evil. That can give us great hope, great comfort, great encouragement instead of grumbling and complaining or accusing God of not being good David and we should also recognize that God is good and will do good even amid evil Romans chapter 9 uh, verse 15 is talking about um, why it is that uh, so few uh, ethnic Jews are saved. He's talking about God's purposes and election, that there are children of the promise and, and, and uh, those who are not. And then, uh, where am I at here? Verse 15. For he says to Moses, so why, why does it happen this way? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, who will say to me then, or you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Very challenging passage. But we see here God's mercy, God's purposes of election. Does God decree who will be saved based upon man's decision? No, he says it's not based on human will, but based upon God who will have mercy on whomever he has mercy. So God's decrees are not dependent on man. Which, at first, we may sort of revolt against that, but that is a good thing. If God's decrees were dependent on man's will, none of us will be, would be saved. It's a good thing that God's decrees do not depend on human will. That God's decrees, that God's will depends on his will. And he does whatever he pleases because he is not only sovereign, he is good, he's holy, he's all-knowing, he's righteous, he's wise, he's gracious beyond measure, he's immutable. It's good that God's will does not depend on human will. Verse, uh, again, looking at verse 19 and onward of that passage, how should we not respond to God's purpose and decree? Yeah. We should not, res- we should not respond by questioning or, not, you know, not questioning as in a genuine question, I want to know but a, a questioning, a, a challenging. Yeah, how dare you sort of an attitude. And that, frankly, I think is our knee-jerk reaction. And that's why Paul addresses it. He, he, he recognizes that, that that's the impulse you know, that if, if this is how it is, how, you know, how could you do that, God? Why are you like that? We're, we're actually challenging and questioning his, all of these attributes. We're challenging and questioning God's goodness and God's wisdom and, and God's righteousness and God's grace when, when we ask that question in a challenging sort of way. You know, it, it, this passage is very similar to the book of Job because, you know, Job... Doesn't, didn't know what, what happened in chapter 1, right? Where we see behind the scenes of, of that interaction with God and Satan. And, and all of these bad things happen to Job, horrible things. He loses uh, his family, all of his possessions. He loses his health. He's just sitting there scraping his skin, the sores on his skin. And, and the question throughout is, is why? Why did this happen? Right? And his friends are accusing Job of, of sin, that these things happen because you're a sinful man, Job. Right? 
And, and, and God finally appears near the end of the book. And, and how does he answer Job's question? Where were you? God, God is showing that he's wiser than Job. He's wiser than, than Job's friends. They weren't there when, when he created all things. They weren't there when he put Orion's belt in the sky. They weren't there when God set the limits on the sea. They weren't there when, when God in his wisdom created all things. And so that knee-jerk reaction, you know, how could you do this, God? We, we, in that moment, we think that we're wiser than God. And God responds by saying, you're not. <laughs> that I actually know what I'm doing. And, and, and at the same time, we don't want to neglect that it's very easy to deny good, uh, God's goodness. If it was hard for Eve in the garden... In a, in a perfect world, if it was hard for Eve uh, to resist the temptation of Satan um, that God was not good, how much harder is it for us in this sin-tainted world? We have to recognize that it's the same lie that Satan told Eve, that God is not really good. And, and as we see the world around us, as we see the evil things that happen, it can be very tempting to question God's, either God's wisdom or, or God's goodness. And we have to recognize that, that those are lies straight from the pit of hell. That God is good. And he shows us time and time again that he is good. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's very true. Sometimes we see in this life, and that's, that's a blessing, isn't it? That we see how God actually... <laughs> and I think especially, you know, for those of us who have lived longer, you can look back and see more and more how God has actually worked good out of things that we wouldn't have chosen. But there are things that we don't know that until glory. But we can believe that because God has revealed that. So just some implications, applications of the doctrine. We're going to get to a point here where we're going to set up some important fences around the doctrine because there are questions that pop into our mind when we think about the fact that God decrees all things. But before we get to that, some implications and applications of the doctrine. Behind everything is God's most holy, wise, and good purpose. Behind everything. Secondly, we can take comfort in God in every circumstance because behind everything is God's most holy, wise, and good purpose. Thirdly, it's important for us to recognize that grumbling and complaining against circumstances is grumbling and complaining against God. You know, we see that in the, the wilderness that when the Israelites complained about their condition, God recognized that as them complaining against him, right? Because if God has decreed all things, if he has a purpose for all things, grumbling and complaining against circumstances is grumbling and complaining against him. Fourthly, 
because behind everything is God's most holy, wise, and good purpose, we should and we can praise God in every circumstance. Even if we don't understand what's going on, uh, even if the thing in itself is, is bad, we can have hope and we can praise God that he is actually accomplishing good in that thing. And then lastly, we can have confidence in God's promises because his purposes, his decree do not change based upon man's will. It's based upon his character and what he has decided. Well then, there's an objection that comes up. We see it in verse 19. If, if this is the case, if God has decreed all things from the beginning, the uh, knee-jerk reaction is that question. How does he still find fault for who can resist his will? How can God uh, find fault in those who sin if God has decreed all things? And this is where we need to put up some fences around this doctrine. We need to hold up uh, multiple truths that seem like they are against each other but God's word never uh, indicates that they are against each other. That God's word time and time again holds both of these things up. So first of all, God, is, uh, uh, has, God has decreed all things from the beginning and, and God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of sin. We need to maintain that. The confession goes on. Yet so... As thereby is, uh, yet so as thereby is God, neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. So God has decreed all things, and yet, Scripture also tells us that God is not the author of sin. He's not the source of sin. Sin does not originate from him. Turn to 1 John 1.5. And if someone could read that, please. 1 John 1.5. God is light. He, he's, he's pure. He, he, he's good. There's no darkness in him. There's no evil in him. James uh, chapter 1. Could someone turn there and read chapter 1 verses 13 through 15. According to this passage, why do people sin? Yeah, because they want to. You and I sin because we want to. Who's responsible for the sin? We are. Right? And again, it seems like these things are contrary. It's, it's like the Trinity in, in, in some ways, right? They seem to be two truths that can't be held together. That God is one God and three persons. It seems like, how can we hold both of these things? But the Bible clearly reveals both of those things. And if we deny one, is that a bad thing? Yeah, it's very bad with the Trinity, right? And it's similar here that, that there are two truths that, that God's word shows us. One is that he has decreed all things, he has ordained all things, whatever so comes to pass is according to his purpose and his will, and 
God is not the author of sin. God is not the source of sin. Is it important that we uphold both? Yes. Yeah. Secondly, second fence. Not only do we need to also maintain that God's not the author of sin, he's not the source of sin, we also need to hold up the fact that God does not force people to act. Continue on in the confession. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. In other words, God does not twist anybody's arm to sin. God doesn't force someone to sin. He doesn't, you know, pick someone up and he didn't drag Joseph's brothers to, to Joseph and, and push them to push Joseph into the, the hole. God doesn't force people to sin. We saw in James there that people sin because they want to sin. And we see this play out through Scripture, Acts chapter 4. We see both, both truths being upheld, that God ordains all things and God does not force people to sin. Uh, Acts chapter 4. Um, in verse 26. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pontius Pilate uh, precipitated the events that, that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. Why? Because it was God's plan. He predestined that to take place. He predestined that evil men would crucify Christ. He predestined that Pontius Pilate would be a part of that. And yet at the same time, let's turn to Mark, chapter 15. Verses 14 through 15. Uh, the crowd is yelling to Pilate, crucify him. Pilate's kind of trying to squirm out of it. Verse 14, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, listen to this, why does Pilate uh, send Jesus to be crucified? So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Did God twist Pilate's arm to crucify Christ? No, why did Pilate crucify Christ? To please the crowd. He was fearful of the crowd, right? He feared man rather than God. He knew that Jesus was innocent. So Pilate did what he wanted to do, right? God never forced him to do that. Another important passage, Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to try to speed through some of these things. They're very important, so I, I want to give them proper attention here. Isaiah chapter 10. Again, we're looking at the fact that God decrees all things, yet he doesn't force people to act, that we make real choices because we want to. This is talking about uh, uh, Assyria, how God will uh, use... Assyria to judge Israel. 
Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Okay, so who's the one sending Assyria to judge Israel? God. This is God's plan and purpose that Assyria would uh, be a rod in his hand to discipline Israel. Verse 7, but he does not so intend. In other words, Assyria does not go to attack Israel because he views himself as an instrument of God and, and, and desires to fulfill God's will. It goes on, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? He's, he's prideful. As my hands has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her uh, images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. God actually holds the king of Assyria responsible He's going to use Assyria to discipline Israel, and then he's going to go and judge Assyria. Why? Why did Assyria attack Israel? On one hand, God decreed it, and on the other hand, why? He wanted to. He was prideful. He wanted to uh, uh, pillage and plunder. He wanted to take the things of Israel. He lifted up his heart against the God of, I of Israel. Evil purposes. God never twisted the king of Assyria's arm to do it. He wanted to do it. So we need to uphold both, that God does not force people to act, though he has decreed all actions that take place. And then thirdly, another important fence, we want to recognize the importance of second causes. I'm going to explain what that means in a moment. Uh, continuing on in the confession, nor yet is the liberty, the, the freedom, or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So second causes, um, we have two different, we have the primary cause, which we would say is God according to his nature. He's the primary cause of all things that take place, and he decides that according to his nature, Right? We also have secondary causes, which is creation and creatures acting according to their nature. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 16.33 tells us, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I have a, I have a dice here. Okay, I'm going to roll it. That's a five. Why, did it, why, did it, why is it rolled as a five? Because God has decided it. I roll it again. It's a four. Why is it a four? Because God decided it. But, but that's not all. He's the primary cause why it was a five and a four. But there is also secondary causes. Things like where the dice starts in my hand. 
right? Does it start on a one or six? How high I throw it up? How much it spins? How bouncy this table is? Physics, right? That's the secondary cause. And God works things, has determined things to happen according to secondary causes. It's a one. Why? Because God has determined it. It's a one. Also because of the laws of nature. The, the, the way that he's created things. Does that, does that make any sense? Okay. Let me give you an example, another example. Where does your food come from? Okay. <laughs> Let's say I, I sit down. You know how much I love burritos. Okay. And there's several ingredients. There's the flour tortilla. There's the beef. Let's just say those two things. There's more. That tortilla comes from uh, farmers working to grow uh, f- flour. <laughs> Corn. Yeah. No, this is a this is a wheat. Thanks. That other one. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, Debbie can, is teaching our kids. Okay. Okay. And so the farmer grows the wheat. And then you have people harvest it and they grind it up or something and it becomes flour. And then you have people who take that flour uh, and make the tortilla somehow, okay? And then you have people who, who take that tortilla and package it and ship it to Walmart. And you have uh, workers at Walmart, right? You have all these steps, right? And then you have, uh, in your house, you have the person who actually makes the tortilla, assembles it all together uh, with the rest of the ingredients. And yet, when we sit down to eat, what do you and I do? Who do we thank? God. We thank God. Because we recognize both of those things. The primary reason, the primary cause why I have that burrito is because God has ordained that I have that food. But that does not neglect the fact that there are secondary causes. God works through ordinary uh, sorts of means. Uh, you know, the, the, the wheat grows in the ground according to the way that God has designed it and so on and so forth. Both exist at the same time, right? And so, uh, you know, why are you here today? One, because God has determined it in eternity past. And in another sense, you're here today because you decided to be here. You wanted to be here. Both exist at the same time. We don't want to deny secondary causes. We see that uh, most highlighted in the cross, God predetermined in, before creation that Christ would die on the cross for sinners. And yet, what was the secondary cause? He's the primary cause, but the secondary cause is evil men who wanted to crucify Christ. God is not responsible for the sin. He's responsible for the good that comes out of that sin. My salvation and your salvation. Because he's working according to his nature while those evil men are working according to their nature. Both happen at the same time. God for good purposes and men for evil purposes. And so often the question is asked, if God has sovereignly decreed all that is to come to pass, why should we pray or share the gospel? Because secondary causes are a real thing. God had, has determined that people will be saved through the proclamation of the gospel. God has determined that people would be saved by us praying for their salvation. And so do we neglect the way that God ordinarily saves people because God's sovereign and he's going to do what he wants? That would be absolutely foolish. In the same way, it would be foolish 
to think that God's going to provide me food and so I don't need to go to Walmart to go get food and to put it together. We need to uphold both. Both are important. And if we lose one or the other, it's dangerous. If we lose God's sovereignty, we have no hope. We have absolutely no hope. If we lose our responsibility, there's, there's no action. We won't actually pursue what God has told us. We'll, we'll be in sin. So God is sovereign and we're responsible. We need both. And that actually, you look at through history, most of the major missionary and evangelistic endeavors came from men who believed in both. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, uh, Jim Elliott. These were all men who upheld both. That God is absolutely sovereign and I'm responsible so I can confidently go forward doing what God has told me to do, trusting that whatever happens is in his hands. And we can be the same way that God has, has told us to share the gospel with the lost. And so we go forward and share the gospel broadly because we have confidence that God uh, will save sinners through that secondary cause. Amen? We need to uphold both. I know I'm going late, but I don't care. <laughs> Last thing. Last two things. In which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. In other words, God shows his wisdom and his power and his faithfulness in the fact that he, he accomplishes what he has said he will accomplish. And we see that. The cross is the highlight. God's wisdom displayed. Who, who would have, you and I could not have come up with the fact that God would defeat sin and death through sin and death. What depth of wisdom did God display on the cross? And what depth of wisdom and power and faithfulness is God displaying as he accomplishes decree even through things that seem contrary to us? And so, praise God for that. And lastly, a clarification. Second paragraph. Although God know, knows whatsoever may or can come to pass... Upon all supposed conditions, yet he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. In other words, though God knows all possible events, though God knows the future, his decree of, of what will happen is not based upon uh, him just seeing what will happen. It's not like Erasmus. He, you know, he doesn't look through the corridors of time and say, Oh, well, well, Stephen will be there on Sunday, and so then I decree that he'll be there on Sunday. That, that's not sovereignty. That's him just announcing to us what he, he sees will happen. God actually declares what will happen, and so he knows what will happen because he's decided it. You see the difference there? And so, I'm sorry, Erasmus, but... God's decree does not turn according to man's decision. And that is a good thing. Because God is better than us. He's wiser than us. He's more gracious than us. He's faithful. And, and so I'm, I'm so thankful that all things are in his hand and not mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that there is purpose in everything. 
What a horrible life it would be if, if our lives were purposeless, that, that the hard things we go through were without purpose. Thank you that we can have great hope that you are accomplishing good in all things, that you have determined that all things would happen according to the counsel of your good and gracious and wise will. Lord, pray that you would help us to respond rightly to these things, that it would lead us to be encouraged. It would lead us to to praise. It would lead us uh, to take comfort. And that it would lead us to seek to obey you, knowing that you hold uh, the results in your hands. And pray, Father, that you would help us to uphold uh, truths that, that seem contrary in our finite mind. That you have decreed all things, and you are not the author of sin. So you have decreed all things, and we are responsible for our own actions. Pray that as we seek to maintain both of these truths, your sovereignty and our responsibility, that it would encourage us to do what you have told us to do, that we would share the gospel with the lost, that we would pray for the lost, that we would do the things you have told us to do with great confidence that you use those things to accomplish your good and holy will. And uh, pray that you would help us this morning as we join together in corporate worship, uh, that we would obey you in that way and take great confidence that you use that time to build up your church. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, guys. I am, I am somewhat sorry I went late. <laughs> Actually, I-